Blog Talk Radio. Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this Friday night edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is August 28, 2015. I'm your host, Keith Breckis, broadcasting from Montana, and joined by the show's producer and my co-host, Naomi Minogue in Southern California. How are you doing tonight, Naomi? I'm good, Keith. Thanks so much. Just a little warm. I'm actually looking forward to 86-degree weather next week because it's it topped out here at 102 today. So it's it's a little warm. It's a little warm still. Yeah, sorry to hear that. And uh, it's uh, been really nice here in Montana, but <laughs> I wore yeah, yeah. it in. Um, <laughs> speaking you can of the weather. difference with us over here. Oh yeah, yeah. Said, but the difference. We got down to twenty nine the other night. So. Oh gosh. <laughs> but speaking of weather, um, on this episode we're going to do something I suppose a little different than anything we've done. Um, as many of you are aware, um, today or roughly the days around today, yesterday, and tomorrow mark the tenth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina hitting landfall in in the Gulf Coast and Southern Mississippi and, in, of course, in Louisiana and New Orleans. Um, and uh, for many people, I think, in the for political events in the 21st century, I can't think of anything um, more significant over the 21st century other than September 11, 2001, which, of course, is etched in everybody's mind. But I think um, Hurricane Katrina and the political fallout from that is sort of one of the... Um, pivotal moments of our la- of the last decade. It certainly was part of the undoing of the Bush presidency along with the Iraq war, the the mishandling of the aftermath of Katrina, I think was was really something that did him a lot of damage. And so um what I try to do here, rather than just make it a uh sort of a rehash of the history of what happened ten years ago and we might talk a little bit about that just to refresh people's memory though, I think um is Katrina, in many ways, um, the events surrounding it have so many intersections with things that go on in our political debate today, whether it's, uh, you know, our ignoring climate change or whether it's the way that um, uh, profiteers um, exploit disaster to implement policies that benefit the wealthy or policies that the right wing wants to impose. They do so under disaster circumstances where they can sort of get away with it. And, of course, uh, it, uh, the, the event also deals a lot with the intersection of race and class in politics. Of course, the uh, effects of Hurricane Katrina um, were not felt equally or not born the, – the uh, suffering was not born equally across different uh, socioeconomic and racial groups. So it was mostly the brunt of the suffering was inflicted upon um, impoverished and African-American neighborhoods in particular in, in parts of New Orleans and in other parts of the Gulf Coast. So so I want to try to have a discussion about sort of all those issues and maybe tie them in with some of the things that's happening today. And I don't know if we'll pull it off or not, but we'll at least give it a try. Um, and one of the things I thought I'd bring up first, just because um, because I think it's interesting and, and because it deals with some of the current events and politics is is the Koch brothers connection um to the hurricane katrina events or basically um for lack of a better word i guess the connection there um there was a report that was issued um i guess it was today that was issued today by the bridge project which is sort of a uh I guess you'd say a liberal uh, watchdog group that's kind of maybe loosely affiliated. I don't know if they're connected with the Democratic Party, but basically they're they're a, a progressive group that monitors um, things. And one of the things they did is they released a report about the Koch brothers basically uh, profiteering off Hurricane Katrina um, 
and pushing legislation afterwards to punish poor people or to raise their flood insurance rate, raise their insurance rates so that that the homeowners bore the brunt of the cost, so it wasn't passed on to the taxpayers or business people or you know the the billionaires like the Koch brothers. They shouldn't have to pay for the cleanup. Let let you know let the homeowners pay higher insurance rates. Let the poor people pay for the damage. And uh, and the other thing the report brings out is how how the Koch Industries was actually. Um, through decades of negligence, had resulted in destroying a lot of the wetlands um, through pipeline dredging that uh, compounded the effects of Hurricane Katrina on, uh, in the case of the Koch brothers with the pipelines, were particularly compounded, compounded the effects in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but, but all along that Delta area. And, of course, the hurricane would have been devastating anyways, but the wetlands dredging, took away some of the buffers or barriers that would have reduced the impact of the hurricane. So so in some ways the Koch brothers helped make it worse beforehand and then they made a killing, they made a profit afterwards. And then uh, when poor people tried to move back into their homes, they lobbied to prevent um, them from getting relief on their insurance rates. And some of them had their in- insurance rates not only double or triple, but go up tenfold, like a thousand percent increases. And, um, Senator Mary Landrieu, the Democrat who was there at the time, a lot of things that she that we don't think she did well, but one thing she tried to do was was at least help the homeowners there get some relief, not to have to pay a thousand percent higher insurance. But the Koch brothers lobbied against that and, and fought to to make them pay that higher rate of insurance. So so their connection to the hurricane um, or their connection to the I think is instructive because it sort of illustrates um, in, in detail what the Koch brothers care about is their bottom line, and they've been doing that for a long time. They weren't household names in 2005. I mean, people weren't paying attention to their influence in politics, but it was there even back then. Um, but I, I'm talking a lot, so I'll, I'll turn it over to Naomi if she has uh, further comments on the Koch brothers there. Um. Not too much more. It's no secret that they're out for themselves and that their main goal is their their profit, their bottom line uh, at the at the expense of others, um, no matter what. So it's not surprising that that uh, the Bridge Report comes out with that information, and that it was, like you said, it would, they were harmful before, and then you know harmful uh, afterwards as well to the citizens. Uh, almost to where the point where there wasn't much of a fighting chance for the city, um, having had, you know, things done before, and then the enormity of Hurricane Katrina and just compounded uh, what had already been done. Um, so it's just more of the same of uh, greed and of um, just more profit over people. Um, and that like you said, it continues today where now they're more of a household name, whereas maybe, you know, obviously 10, 12 years ago they weren't as relevant as they are, or their names weren't as, as relevant or as recognized as they are now um, because of the harm that they are that they have done in the past and continue to do. Um, now heading into election season, it's going to get, um, you know, we're going to see more and more money filtered into their candidates and their uh their their own personal uh, causes that they want to see pushed through, um, things that they don't want pushed through, they're going to have all their money behind it. So it's a lot of a lot of uh, ways to get discouraged, a lot of reasons to be discouraged. But uh, we can't. We have to definitely fight back um, and uh, try and, and do what we can to make sure that uh, they aren't put. They don't push everything through, even with their billions and billions of dollars there's a lot of things we can still try and do to to combat what what they've what they're trying to accomplish which is just profit over people yeah and in uh, um of course you know i guess 2005 was before citizens united so that's probably why the folks weren't on our radar but i do remember you know um before hurricane katrina is when grover norquist had said we want to shrink the government to the size where we federal government to the size where we couldn't drown it in a bathtub 
and then in in sort of almost a cruel ironic way um th- then they got their you know they essentially got their opportunity to drown the government uh, um with with hurricane katrina and the after effects and I want to go a little bit further and talk a little bit about how the tragedy is exploited by sort of free market fundamentalists and right-wingers. But I thought I'd read just just to get people's idea of the involvement in the Koch brothers, I thought I'd read just a little bit of an excerpt from the Bridge Project so people get a sense of what their argument is here. Um, One of the things they say is the Koch brothers' driving philosophy is to put their business interests ahead of everything else. As long as they're growing their bottom line, nothing and no one else matters. And and that's pretty much a philosophy for sort of right-wing um, predatory capitalism anyways. It's as long as we're making money, it doesn't matter who we heard along the way. But um, some of the specific things that the study refers to says, in 2005, Coke Industries was accused of decades of negligence resulting in destroyed wetlands from pipeline dredging, which allegedly compounded the effects of Hurricane Katrina on Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Before the hurricane made landfall, the Koch saw opportunity to profit from a vulnerable population in need of scarce resources, uh, and they called it the right market to restart operations um, because, of course, they could take advantage of that vulnerable population. After the hurricane, Coke Industries immediately went to work taking advantage of the situation, participating in a subsidized federal bond program. So here the billionaires are getting subsidies while the poor people are having their insurance rates raised, um, which hardly seems fair. And and during that time, the Coke Coke Brothers or the Coke Industries was investigated for price, price gouging during a time of crisis. Um, ultimately, I should point out the Federal Trade Commission ruled in favor of the Koch brothers, but members of Congress from both parties were highly critical of the FTC's investigation. And keep in mind that this was under the Bush presidency when Bush was president, not Obama. But but uh, Diane Feinstein and Chuck Schumer on the Democratic side were highly critical of the investigation, saying that they, you know, basically saying that they could see evidence of price gouging. And uh, Republicans also were Arlen Specter from Pennsylvania, who later became a Democrat, but at that time was a Republican still, I believe, um, also um, disagreed with the FTC finding finding in favor of the Koch brothers. And then at the end, I'd just point out, on top of their efforts at the time of the storm, uh, more recently the Kochs have actively pushed policies that would hurt residents in flood-prone areas like the Gulf Coast attempting to make flood insurance unaffordable to all but the wealthiest Americans and thereby pricing many residents out of their homes. Um, So, you know, this is a pretty um, critical report, but I I think there's a lot of valuable information in there. I think it's pretty clear that uh, the Koch brothers, like uh, many other billionaires, uh, particularly those on the right, are in it for themselves, and, and it doesn't really matter what happens to other people. And I I think that's just disturbing, and uh, and I kind of wanted it tied in. There's a reason for all this, and and it ties into the concept of of disaster capitalism. Um, and for some of our readers, they might be familiar with um, a brilliant author. Of course, she's brilliant because her name's Naomi, and everybody with that name is a brilliant progressive. Um, but in this case, it's not our Naomi, but. <laughs> Uh, the Canadian uh, journalist or, or author Naomi Klein wrote a book um, quite a few years ago now, I think maybe 2007 or something like that, but called Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And Hurricane Katrina fits right in into her argument, which is basically that um, proponents of the so-called free market solutions, libertarians like the Koch brothers and the Republicans, like Bush and, and others, will take tragedies and exploit them to um, basically to undermine the public sector, to privatize things and to make it a, a profit-grabbing opportunity for for big corporations. Um, so, for example, in Iraq, you had Halliburton, Dick Cheney's old company, cashing in on the war and, and you know, making money there. You had uh, private security companies both in Iraq and, and in New Orleans during Katrina, Blackwater mercenaries making a profit there. And so 
what they do is they basically, under the shock of a natural disaster, or in the case of the Iraq War, a man-made disaster, you go in and while the people are still staggering to get back on their feet, you go in and exploit the situation and it becomes a market boon for for a very few people while everybody else suffers. Um, so so they do it after hurricanes, after, after the tsunamis in the Pacific, um, when they go into a war zone and... And it's been going on for for several years now, but I mean, uh, uh, Katrina was just one of the more glaring examples of that. And the Koch brothers are are part of the people in on sort of the profiteering buffet of of the post tragedy. And it's just um, I don't know if you haven't read the book Shock Doctrine, I highly recommend it. I think I think it helps make a lot of sense of the economic policies that are pursued in times of crisis. And, and you see it, too, in, in um, well, like Michigan, when they put the emergency manager law in, in, and so they say, oh, yeah, we're in a financial crisis, so, you know, the governor's got to basically declare the city of Detroit or other cities a dictatorship so he can take over and privatize the schools and privatize other things so people can make money and you take the power away from the people that are there and, and, and uh Hurricane Katrina was was an example, sort of a laboratory for this kind of policy in the United States, and and uh, so that's one of the things that I think people can look at through that is that they use it as a as a case for for advocating right wing sort of free market policies and destroying the public sector that could be there to help people. Um, do you have any thoughts on on the exploitation of tragedies that way, Naomi? Or? Well, it just bothers me, you know, that that's some people take tragedy and disaster and look for a way to make money off of it um, instead of going in and donating their either financial resources or uh, getting groups together to go and, and help and be hands on um, or set up agencies or start things up to help uh the people that are you know in these dire straits um and you know the 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 whole city was just literally underwater and they had to start from scratch almost everything was destroyed and so to have people going in and and looking for ways and being creative to try and uh see how they can profit at at the cost of people that have already lost everything is so um it's it's really disgusting to me um and I don't mean that lightly it, it's very uh foul um you know we're 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 not that's not who we are that's not our country we are supposed to reach out and and help each other and get help the other person get back on their feet um so it is very disturbing to read these reports and to and to see these um examples that you're giving out and and but it's true it it does happen we're you know we're not naive we know that that people do that but it's just very uh it's horrible to see that people are sitting on gads of money uh and at what cost instead of using their creativity and their ingenuity to help people and to help a, a, an entire city get back on their feet They'll do anything they can to make it harder for people to find their communities again and to and to rebuild and to start again. It's very dehumanizing. It's very uh, it's it's very harmful to the society, to people, and very scarring emotionally uh, to think that you have something or that you can fall back on insurance or that you can get apply for a program or an aid to help you get back on the feet and, on your feet and to find that it's gone. Or that financially it's out of your reach because of the intervention of of people like the Koch brothers. So I I find that that part of it extremely disturbing. Um, it happens. Um, hopefully there's more good than than bad. That's that's going to be there. Um, but hopefully that you know there are more people that reach out and that help than there are that make a buck off of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and I I think 
too, another another angle on that, um, sort of exploiting the crisis and tying into what we said earlier that that I don't think a lot of people are realized too is that that Hurricane Katrina was used by the right wingers by by um to to undermine the public school system, sort of, you know, by the so called corporate education reform people. So what happened right after the the aftermath of the two thousand five hurricane 7,000 employees were laid off from the Orleans Parish School Board. I mean, 3,000 staff members, 4,000 teachers, and most of the public schools in New Orleans, 107 of the 128 public schools were basically turned over and put into the hands of a charter recovery school district, basically, to privatize them. So they, so here the teachers... You know, people are have their homes flooded. They have this devastating hurricane, and then they go back and they're laid off from their jobs because the government, or because the you know in Louisiana they say, oh, okay, well we're going to turn over the public school system to these charter schools. You know, we're going to privatize your schools because, gosh, we're in a tragedy and we have to do that. And and so that that's you know laying off seven thousand teachers and and um and turning the schools over to the private schools um, was part of something they did there. They exploited that tragedy to do that. And now, 10 years later, those are some of the worst performing uh, charter schools in the country. So so they didn't do it for the kids. They did it because somebody can make money. It's kind of like the private prisons. Um, so, you know, somebody's making money off the privatized prisons, but but it isn't it isn't for the benefit of the prisoners and in the, this case um the privatization of the schools wasn't uh, to the benefit of the, the kids but again this is just another example of of when there's a crisis they can get away with that um had it been under normal circumstances and people weren't cleaning up after the mess of a hurricane there'd have probably been a big uh, public outcry and people trying to prevent this and people would have organized to, you know, save these teachers jobs or to keep these schools from closing or being restructured. But because it was in the aftermath of, of a devastating storm, they were basically able to do it un, unhindered. And, and then of course the people that suffer are, are the teachers and the kids. So it's just, just another example of how sort of craven some some people can be when when uh, when money talks louder than than uh, other values. And it, it's also very uh, demeaning to the community when no one feels you know when when something happens to your community. Um, and you want to reach out to each other and say, well, we're proud of our community. We loved, we love our community. We loved our neighborhoods and what used to be here. And we want to, we want to rebuild. We want to, we'll come back from this. We want to start up again. And then all that's taken away from you when people are brought in that don't have any history with the community, that don't like the, like teachers or, you know, faculty are brought in that don't have any ties to the community. And maybe it's a community that has had, generations of people attend those schools or maybe even return to ta- to teach at the schools after college getting their degrees or or so forth you know role models are 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 taken out when you fire teachers or people that have been part of that community so not you know of course their community is devastated but then they don't have a job you know to boot and then you don't include them and make them part of the rebuilding process you just sell it to a, to a company, basically, and that's also very um, demeaning. And it, it it just is another way to kind of squash um, the the I guess the mechanic or the the personality of the community. It, it it squashes it, and it 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 makes the people not feel like they have anything or any hope. Things are being distributed away from them without their say in it. And they aren't able to come back as a community. They're kind of just forced, quite literally, like the families that were either broken up and some were sent on a bus, you know, to Texas and some were sent on a bus to, you know, maybe to Arkansas, their families after Katrina or, you know, communities, neighbors are no, were no longer together. Everybody just got split up. And like you said, people came in and figured out opportunities for that instead of saying, stop, let's rebuild, let's build something with the people that are staying behind 
and let's get something rebuilt and give people a home to come back to. That did happen in some instances, but not not in all of it. Unfortunately, not in all of, of uh, the areas that were hit the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, the city lost hundreds of thousands of residents, and now I think the current population is still about 125,000 residents shy of what's pre-Katrina, and, and about 100,000 of those are black residents and maybe about 25,000 white residents. So had a larger in, impact on the African-American parts of town, although it affected the whole community to some degree, of course. Um, um, I d- did want to talk after the break, after the halfway point, a, a little bit about uh, race and, and the hurricane and and, and how that played out and how it relates to some things today like the Black Lives Matter movement. But before we do that, I think I should point out we're, we're approaching half past the hour. It's uh, um, 25 minutes after, so it's 1025 Eastern time, 725 Pacific. But I wanted to let um, our listeners know about our guests coming up in the next two weeks. Um, next week on the air, we will have Kilgore live. Um, he's the author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. So we'll be talking about um, prisons and, and uh, maybe things that we can do better, talk about the mass incarceration system in the United States. And in two weeks, um, our guest will be John B. Diamond, who, speaking of schools, he is the author of Despite the Best Intentions, How Racial Inequality Thrives in Good Schools. So we'll be talking about race um, as it relates to schools and specifically how even good schools um, perpetuate racial inequality. So both those interviews should be, um, I think, fairly interesting, and and people may want to tune in for that. Um, um, Can you tell people where they can find us on social media if they're interested in uh, finding finding out more? Sure, we're on uh, Facebook. Just type uh, Liberal Fix into the search engine. We also have our website at www.liberalfix.com. And uh, you can also uh, follow Keith on his articles. He's a full-time writer at Politicus USA, so you can find him uh, on on Politicus USA. His articles are published there daily. And follow him at Twitter, at Keith Breckis. And um, most importantly, we welcome your comments and your feedback if you have ideas for a guest or a topic that you'd like us to cover you can always email me at uh or naomi at liberalfix.com yeah all good stuff there so so contact us if you have ideas about guests or if you want to um have ideas about a show that we should do um and Again, if you just joined us, we're we are uh, talking about the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, um, which happened in 2005, and also trying to maybe tie it in with some current uh, trends or structures that are going on in contemporary politics. And uh, one thing I I think that Hurricane Katrina and the psyches of Americans, um, I think maybe more than many other events, has um, maybe two different, well, more than two, but 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 I think it's something that's seen very differently by white Americans and black Americans. And what I mean by that is um, if you look at, like, some of the events the last couple of days, like uh, Mayor Mitch Lander of New Orleans talking about the city sort of rebuilding and, and, and how, you know, how wonderful the recovery has been or how, how things have changed for the good and how it's shown how strong the community is. And Barack Obama has partially uh, shared that narrative, and it's sort of a whitewashed or sanitized narrative of the of the Katrina event and the aftermath because um, what they're really not talking about is race, which, which in the case of Hurricane Katrina was huge when it happened. I mean, the, the, the disparate impact that it had on the white and black community and the way that people were treated during the hurricane. I mean, I mean, you can't, you can't really talk about hurricane Katrina without talking about race. Um, I mean, at least not honestly talk about it. And one of the things uh, I read an article 
this week, um, which I think was in Slate that uh, it basically talked about where, oh, yeah, it was entitled Where Black Lives Matter Began. And it was written by uh, Jamel Bowie. I don't know if I pronounced the name right. But anyways, um, and the subtitle is Hurricane Katrina Exposed Our Nation's Amazing Tolerance for Black Pain. And I think that's actually a quote that Jesse Jackson said that that after watching Hurricane Katrina, he recognized how 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 horrible I guess it was that Americans seemed to have an unending tolerance for black pain, and sort of the implication is that that had this happened in a predominantly white community or in white areas, that the response would have been quicker and more compassionate. Instead, what we had a lot in the media were sort of just oh, it's the victim's fault, they should have left, oh, they're criminals, you know, they're they're looting and, and, and you know, they're they're fighting each other in the Superdome and stuff. Um, 1,800 people lost their lives there, and many of them uh, were killed not by the storm itself but by the aftermath. And while the press spent a lot of time trying to sort of talk about um, basically imaginary violence in the Superdome or, or minimal violence in the Superdome that they kind of tried to blame on gang people people or thugs, but it was largely mythological. What they didn't talk about at all in the press, um, except maybe in the alternative press later, the, the Nation magazine and Mother Jones and other places, was the hidden race war that was going on in the city because you basically had a... a uh, a lawless zone. I mean, sort of a libertarian utopia for the for the gun type people or whatever, because um, the traditional structures of society were were rooted out of place, so there weren't really um, the regular law enforcement operating there. So you literally had people, um, well, literally had vigilantes out there enforcing their own version of justice and. Uh, if you've ever read the Nation article about Katrina's hidden race war, they were literally murdering people. I mean, this is white vigilantes in Algiers Point murdering black people and saying, well, they were taking out looters. And uh, if people remember the, Chris Kyle, the now deceased American sniper, he claimed to have killed 30 people during Katrina that were looters and stuff. And while his claims um, are likely to be bogus or at least exaggerated, um, there were people who were sh- shooting people there, according to the article, and many of them bragged of killing um, several, even dozens of people. And, it, you know, I mean, this was before the George Zimmerman stand your ground thing and stuff, but here's people who are literally um, killing African-Americans. And then on the other side, you had law enforcement um, at the Gretna Bridge refusing to let black people cross to safety there and pushing them back into the city of New Orleans. So basically, you had vigilantes attacking uh, African-American residents. You had um, police forces uh, attacking them. It was open field day. And and if you want to understand sort of where the roots of Black Lives Matter come from, from, um, this is certainly an event in the history of of African-Americans' understanding of how they're treated in this country and understanding of how law enforcement or how white vigilantes will retreat, will treat them. And certainly a, a case of injustice that, that basically went unchallenged at the time. I mean, most of these uh, people who shot uh, those African-American residents were never put on trial. There was never justice served for those crimes because essentially all laws went out the window during that time period. And, um, and it also, um, that incident, the Hurricane Katrina, sort of led to a growing pessimism in the United States among African Americans about their chance to um, sort of be treated fairly in this country. Not that the history before that should have given them any illusions that they would be, but but you know, in, in the sort of idea that maybe the world that the country had become somewhat more post-racial, um, Hurricane Katrina was sort of a rude awakening and. And, of course, when Obama got elected in 2008, there was a bit of a honeymoon period again, like, oh, maybe things really are getting better. But that's probably worn off, too, with so, with so many of the incidents since then, with things like Ferguson and and, and uh, Baltimore and other things. I mean, we're kind of back into a uh, Katrina-era mindset of where, where it does really 
there's two different Americas, at least, you know, in terms of black and white, not to mention rich and poor and so on. Um, but any thoughts on the, the sort of racial uh, component of the, the Katrina tragedy and maybe how that, that informs what we see today? Uh, well, what what I know from my memory of Katrina is that there it, it hit everywhere. It wasn't the Katrina wasn't racially didn't racially divide the community. It hit everybody, and so it hit white community people with communities with whites as well as blacks. Um, but it did it did seem. Uh, even in the in the news clips and in what was going on, that uh, it was more uh, the black communities completely devastated and seemed to be reached uh, not as quickly as the white communities that maybe didn't maybe didn't experience as much devastation, but did have that devastation and maybe were reached and taken care of a little bit quicker. Um, I, I remember just seeing complete devastation everywhere. It just was unbelievable the amount of damage. Um, and I and I remember thinking, you know, it, it hit everybody. It didn't just hit pockets. It didn't just hit the black communities. Everybody got hit. Um, there was devastation everywhere. Um, I don't I don't know facts how long it took to rebuild certain areas versus, you know, black communities versus or predominantly African-American neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods. I don't know those facts and figures. Um, I just know that it, it was, there was racial uh, divide then with looting and, and people trying to um, make it, make the, make the racial uh, commentary alive at that point. And then it, like you said, and now, today it's still it's still prevalent i i don't know what if there what if there ever has been a time when you know racial uh division hasn't been around and when when disaster strikes it seems like it kind of compounded even more you know, like you as a sociologist know that that when there's tragedy and when there's devastation everybody everybody gets amped up you know two or three more times than maybe they would normally be so it just comes out even at a height, more heightened sense than without disaster. So to have that boiling pot, the lid just fly off with the hurricane, uh, you know, it, it was just a recipe for, for disaster as well. Yeah, and, and one thing, too, is, is you're right. I mean, in terms of the, the swell of the storm, it hit everybody. And I know in terms of the winds and the devastation, too, I mean, where main landfall in southern Mississippi was indiscriminate. I mean, rich and poor home alike were were destroyed. I I think what what was different maybe to some extent in New Orleans is that um, the by geographical segregation or or, or whatever you want to call it, um, the the low line the worst hit areas as far as the flooding part tended to be on the east side of town, which tended to be African-American. And whether that's by design or by accident, I mean, it was the east side of the town that took the heaviest or most devastating flooding in some of the some of the white areas, which aren't much higher, but on the west side of town were just a little bit higher, so they avoided some of the more um, serious flooding. But I, I think in terms of the natural devastation, things might have been more even. What happens in terms of rebuilding is that <laughs> – the people on the west side of town that did have their homes destroyed found it easier to get loans because they were white and probably had whatever credit ratings or connections that made, made that possible. So you see the disparity. And, and of course, when the storm first hit, um, people with money and transportation were able to leave more rapidly than people who were um, perhaps on the east side of town and surrounded by water already and didn't have an easy way out. So there was a lot of racial disparity in how people experience the event, but in terms of the weather, yeah, it's, it's fairly indiscriminate in terms of where it strikes, although there is some uh, sort of political geography at place in terms of whose homes are built on the floodplain and whose homes are a little higher up. Um, and, and, of course, all that plays out in different ways. And, and in the rebuilding, it's been kind of the same story. The rebuilding has been... Um, 
the area that's been neglected in terms of rebuilding the city has tended to be the wards on the east side of town. Um, and that's especially true now because the city government is is much wider than it was pre-hurricane. I mean, when they lost residents, it was, it was a political power of the African-American community that was most diluted by the storm. And uh, so now I think... I don't know if it's currently a five to two white city council, but at least at one point post Katrina, it was, even though the city is majority African-American. And of course the race of the people on the council doesn't necessarily mean that they won't represent the interests of the community, but it is somewhat revealing or, 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 you know, um, telling that, that, that the council was five out of seven of them were, were white after the storm. And of course the mayor also now is uh white rather than African-American, although um, I guess whatever else you could say about Mitch Landry, he's, he's a better mayor than Ray Nagin was. I mean, Nagin was African-American, but he was also a, a George Bush supporter for president, even though he was nominally a Democrat because Republicans can't win in New Orleans. But um, but but so many things sort of tie together there, and and I think it's, it's – um, I think just the, the – the fact that um, from from the perspective of African Americans, it was pretty clear that they were being ignored during the storm. And I think, you know, I guess um, Kanye West famously said, George Bush doesn't care about black people and whatever else you could say about him. I think that particular insight of his, even maybe if it was overly blunt and perhaps um, overstated, or maybe it wasn't overstated, but in any case, I think there was a revealing truth there. I think it's some truth to that, and certainly, um, if Bush did it, certainly one could say that uh, uh, many of the Republicans since him haven't either. <laughs> Clearly, in cases where um, where political situations arise, I kind of go back to Michigan again. I, I think it's pretty clear that um, Rick Snyder doesn't care about black people, and there you don't even have a natural disaster. You just have him taking over a lot of the cities because of a so-called uh, financial disaster. But 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 it's almost as if he's using the Hurricane Katrina model as an excuse to go in and, and privatize schools and close down schools in the cities and privatize services. And, and some people are getting rich while most of the people are um, suffering under those kind of regimes, under that sort of um, uh, temporary emergency rule or management or whatever you want to call it. And and it's something that I, I think the right wing has used Katrina as sort of a, a blueprint for, for doing the thing in other cities that they can plausibly say are under crisis. Um, And I guess we're about uh, approaching 45 minutes after the hour. Um, I didn't have too much else to say about Katrina. There's a couple other issues that I think we could touch on briefly that happened in the news this week. I did want to mention one more ironic uh, note, though, on Katrina. We haven't talked about climate uh, much. And, of course, the, the interrelationship between climate and severe storms is complicated, so it isn't as if global warming or climate change is creating hurricanes. Obviously, we've had hurricanes for a long time, but, but there is some evidence that rising sea temperatures increases the intensity or severity of hurricanes, and, and uh, our, our oceans are getting warmer, and so some people have suggested that that's one of the reasons Hurricane Katrina had the strength that it did or that similar storms do. And uh, I thought it was kind of funny this week when uh, – Barack Obama was scheduled to speak in New Orleans at uh, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal, um, Louisiana Governor and stealth presidential candidate. Uh, he hasn't really registered on the polls, but in case we're wondering, yes, he is running for president, but he's like in 11th or 12th place, so he probably didn't know it. But in any case, um, Jindal sent a letter to Obama saying, oh, yeah, come to come to New Orleans and, and commemorate or whatever our 10th anniversary, but don't don't say a word about climate change. That's off the table. So I thought that was just kind of a, a sort of um, amusing and stick your head in the sand kind of uh, way of addressing the whole climate issue surrounding Katrina, which is is a topic worthy of discussion, though I, I probably agree with him that it shouldn't be the 
focus of a discussion, but to say that you shouldn't say anything about climate change when this clearly a climatological event seems seems a bit silly to me. Did you have any comments on that? Well, just because, you know, he thinks his residents don't know and haven't heard about the residents of the great state of Louisiana <laughs> don't know anything about climate control. I mean, I mean, I mean, climate right. change. I mean, what, what? But he thinks that if you don't say it, they won't think about it. It's out there, and he doesn't have, you know, there doesn't have idiots in Louisiana. There's, there are beautiful people there. They're very smart. They're very intelligent, and they're well educated, and they love their great state just like we love where we are. And uh, they're very much aware of what's going on. So, for him to act like if you don't say it we will, you know nobody will think about it is just another you know another uh mark that uh shows us he has no business running for president yeah <laughs> apparently voters agree even republican voters cuz although although I will say Bobby Jindal's doing uh a little better than Lindsey Graham who one poll said he has literally zero supporters and and then in the next sentence said no literally there were zero re- supporters <laughs> not zero percent rounded down but none i think bobby jindal had rounded like 1% down <laughs> we're not rounding rounded down, down to zero we are rounding up <laughs> i i don't think i've ever heard rounding down to zero on a on a, on a presidential candidate <laughs> and and uh um I guess one other thing I'd touch on is um, beyond Katrina, looking forward to today, one thing I did want to point out this week is that I guess it's a topic we didn't spend the whole show on because um, because it happens so often that if we spent the whole show on every uh, gun tragedy or every mass shooting or every uh, sensationalized shooting, we, we'd be talking about it every show, and we talk about it quite a bit anyways. Um, and we're, we will keep talking about it because it's an important issue, but I think many of our listeners probably saw the sort of live shooting of of a couple reporters in, in Virginia, and it um, reminds me of a a movie I once saw, but, but uh, now it's, you know... Um, but this wasn't a movie. It was real life, and these are real people who were killed. And it's, um, I don't know, it just, it's a sad event, and it's so frustrating that the first reaction from many in, in politics is, or or in the media is to say, oh, no, well, we can't blame the gun. We have to blame the shooter. Well, of course, nobody's saying that the gun did it by itself. But, but you know, it, it comes back to how many times are we going to have to, endure this kind of thing before before we take some kind of meaningful action and and no law, no law is of course going to going to eliminate gun violence in this country probably I, I think we can't expect that that any law would stop it but we could at least make an effort to reduce the frequency of it i mean we we almost seem obligated to and yet nobody wants to do anything but i know this is an issue near and dear to uh, Naomi and something that that um, she puts a lot of effort into trying to address with gun sense. So, so I, I'll I'll turn over the microphone to her if she has anything to say about this week's um, tragedy. Um, it's it's just uh, it's it's enough and it's way beyond time. Uh, and I've I've seen you know threads on on. Uh, Facebook and I've seen tweets where people say, oh, you know, don't make this political and don't talk about it right now. The family needs to grieve and, you know, we it's too late to, it's, you know, we don't, we don't want to talk about things right now. It's too soon. It's, it's, when is, well, then when do we talk? Have we waited long enough, long enough? Is it, has it been enough time since Sandy Hook, Aurora, Tucson, Virginia Tech? Has it been enough time? Can we talk? Start talking about it, or do, you know, because it happens every day. Eighty-eight Americans are killed every day, so there isn't a right time to wait. There is no waiting time. We have to address it. And Congress goes back on September 9th, and we need to address them and say, we had a horrible summer. It was so devastating, with the, the tragic loss of lives just every single day. This was 
the worst summer. We need to make our Congress do something. They have to be held accountable for their apathy and their lacks of gun law, of trying to get gun sense legislation on the table. There is movement state by state. It is happening. Different um, loopholes are being closed or different laws are being enacted uh, for the types of guns that are allowed for permits, etc. But as a federal law, we need to have more movement. We need to have more, much more legislation than, than we do have. And like you said, it's not going to solve all the problems, but we need to start having consistent, reasonable dialogue. It is, we are capable of doing it. We just haven't done it. And now we need to hold Congress accountable. I know it's really, it's a, it's a hard topic to talk about because we try to balance Second Amendment with gun sense. But it can be done, and, and we have to do that. We have to have that conversation. And I, I know that it's something that uh, President Obama has brought up time and time again. He wishes that Congress would get it together and put some legislation on the table that he can sign and enact and, and move forward with, and it just isn't happening. Um, so I know groups that, we're, um, that we've had um, guests on, like the Moms Demand Action and... A coalition to Stop Gun Violence for a campaign. We've had uh, uh, Holly Dexter on from Women Against Gun Violence talking about it. Um, we need to, to hit the ground running on September 9th. We have to force our legislate, legislators to do something. Yeah, and I thought um, one senator or one member of Congress who I think has really taken this on head on and I also want to give a plug for Hillary Clinton, who's been speaking pretty strongly oh, yes. on the campaign trail about gun violence. But, but one yeah. senator made a quote, I, I think, today that really, really, I think, hit home. And it was uh, Senator Chris Murphy, a freshman senator from Connecticut, who I believe was actually the congressional rep for the district that includes um, Newtown, Newtown, Connecticut, when he was in Congress. Yeah. So he was the rep, the Sandy Hook rep, if you will, or the rep for that part of Connecticut, but he said, I believe in an interview today, Congress's silence in the face of this rash of mass shootings has become complicit. complicity. I really do believe that people take cues from the highest level of government, the highest levels of public service. We are essentially sending a message of quiet endorsement of these murders. We are the only country in the world that looks at this rate of slaughter, which is unprecedented amongst industrialized first world countries, and throws our hands up and says, we can't do anything. I've never been more offended by anything in my life than the absolute, utter inability of Congress to even have a debate about how we might be able to do things differently. And and he goes on to another part that I like that he said in that interview is um, <laughs> is a call out to Democrats that are afraid of the NRA. He said, um, we have to remind Democrats, too, when you vote with the NRA, they don't care. They don't, right? Mark Baggett of Alaska voted with the NRA. He voted against the background checks bill, and they still spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to defeat him in Alaska. And by the way, he lost. <laughs> so we also have to remind Democrats that it's not like you're going to buy yourself any political favors by voting with the NRA. They want Republicans, period. So just stop. <laughs> so I appreciate that. I, I think him calling out his colleagues and saying, you know, don't try to curry favor with the NRA if you think it's going to help you win. It's not, and um, let's just do the right thing here. And so uh, kudos to him and, and kudos to Hillary Clinton, too, for talking about gun violence on the campaign trail. Did you have any thoughts on either of those political figures? Well, I I think that uh, that Hillary Clinton has, has definitely put it out there that she's going to tackle it. Um, she has said it's a tough issue, um, but I'm I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to tackle it, and she has included it as part of her conversations. Um, and moms to man action. Moms have been uh, on the campaign trail and asking questions. They were there in New Hampshire asking questions, and they were there in Cleveland yesterday. Um, even one of the uh, chapter moms was able to get uh, her to wear a moms to man action bracelet. So she she knows that the groups are out there. She knows that she has the support 
Um, and she's she's absolutely, of course, not afraid to to go toe to toe with uh, with the argument of the Second Amendment um, can't be uh, touched. Um, it's going to take a it's a marathon. It's going to take a lot uh, to do, but it can be done. And I believe it's going to take someone that's willing to talk about it now, uh, that's willing to make uh, common sense legislation on it, or talk at least talk about what her plan is um that's definitely going to put more people on the ground to feel like somebody's finally listening and not just listening but doing something that has power to do something um i that's it's going to be definitely uh very interesting to see how she does on the campaign trail um moms and the gun violence prevention family are definitely um in favor of someone taking it to the White House and talking about it and and and, and doing uh, everything they can to make sure that Congress does what they're supposed to do. Um, the nation, over half of the Americans agree that there should be uh, universal background checks, that loopholes should be addressed. So get on it. Um, we, should, we should not have... Uh, the amount of violence every day that we have in this country. We can do better, and, and we should do better. We owe it to the millions of people that have died at the hands of uh, irresponsible or irresponsible and lax gun laws, all in the name of the Second Amendment. I agree. And, uh, you know, and it occurred to me after Chris Murphy's uh, statement today that he might be a good vice presidential choice Um Although I know New England isn't necessarily a, a place where where people necessarily draw from, and I always kind of thought Sheldon Whitehouse would be cool just because when you have the bumper sticker Whitehouse for Vice President, but but you know, <laughs> but uh, Chris Murphy would be great too. I think uh, Murphy would be good on a ticket or or something like that, or just. I, I like his voice in the public dialogue. I like the fact that he's a freshman senator speaking out. Of course, I love some of the others speaking out on other issues as well, like Elizabeth Warren. But, but I do appreciate Murphy's outspoken candor on the on the gun sense issue, and and I hope we'll have more politicians follow his lead. And it'd be nice if somebody out west would do it in one of the uh, more sort of so-called gun-friendly states. It'd be wonderful to see somebody jump off the NRA reservation and really um, put it out there and, you know, a Democrat somewhere like in Missouri or Montana or somewhere, but uh, we'll see if that happens. But in any case, I, I think um, um, hopefully uh, continue to make progress, obviously, at, at the state level. Some good things are happening, but uh, there's also a lot of step, setbacks, and like any political battle, um, you win some, you lose some, but if you keep going forward, eventually you win more than you lose, and the arc of history will bend towards justice at least hopefully it doesn't always bend uh, the same direction all the time and sometimes it goes backwards and forwards but uh, I think with the right effort and the right people doing the right things we can make a difference there but uh, we're running down to our last minute so I guess um, I won't have much else to say but hopefully our retrospective on Katrina was uh, was instructive or informative or, or we added some things that brought events of the past up to the current day and hopefully our discussion of the latest gun tragedy had some insight in it as well or some thought behind it but uh, um, do you have any final thoughts Naomi before I send this off no just I know that uh, that we offer our condolences to the families of Adam West and Allison Parker um, and speedy recovery and best wishes to uh, the woman that was injured in the tragic shooting. Um, too many of, too many people are, they're not in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're doing their jobs. They're where they're supposed to be. And they're, and, uh, they, they just, uh, met a senseless, senseless, uh, tragedy on, on that. Day. And we just wish their families the, the very best. And, uh, hopefully we can, do their legacy proud by getting some some gun sense legislation on the table. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And guess on that note, we just want to thank our listeners for listening, and uh, we'll 
we'll see you again next week or you'll hear us again next week and uh, everybody be kind to your neighbors and have a safe and productive weekend.